You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Sponsorship for this episode is from the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partners, Glue You Adhesives. We're sitting here in the evening sun uh, in late February with a remarkably warm day overlooking the rolling hills of Suffolk. And I'm here to talk to my brother, Mark Curtis, about his life in racing as a farrier, shoeing both horses in training and at the stud farm. Hello, Mark. Hello, Simon. Uh, now, you started in the forge a year after me, despite being a year older, and I think that was 1973, and you were 18 years old. I wonder what your first impressions were. August 1973, you're quite correct. Um, my first impressions were really, what have I done here? I think you'd probably call me a reluctant farrier. It was, I don't think I would have had one thought in a million of being a farrier had not my family been farriers. I don't think my father expected me to be a farrier, and my mother certainly didn't. Um, I had six years at grammar school at Soham, where I was a reasonable student, got half-decent O-levels, stayed on to do three A-levels, did the lower six pretty reasonably, but unfortunately then went to a sixth-form college in uh, Ely, which didn't have the same discipline as Soham, and um, I wasted a year, really. It also had an additional factor, didn't it? Girls. Yes, well, I don't know how deeply we should go into the <laughs> problem that going to school with girls created. Um, but let's say that I didn't, I wasn't the student that I should have been. Uh, I had been on a two-week officer potential course on um, Rosside from um, HMS Intrepid in the early July, and I think. I and the Royal Navy both agreed that I wasn't officer potential. Um, I came back and did six weeks loading out roofs for a local businessman who paid me very nicely in cash. Unfortunately, I got my A-level results and um, my father took one look at them and said, you'd better start on Monday, and I agreed with him. Um, it took me a long while, really, uh, to get into it. Um, I, I think my father thought I'd probably go and do something else, but I stuck to it, and very gradually, I probably gained an interest in it, and um, it went from there. Uh, now, how many, how many farriers were in the forge? when you started in 1973? Well, I think I made it 23. Yeah. 23. Two, two, two of whom were permanently making shoes. Um, one was an old chap called Reg Wiseman. I can't... Well, the other chap was a lad who came over from Hong Kong. Um, 
Bungie for some reason, I can remember. Yeah, that was his nickname. I remember that. Yeah. But um, tell me, there was something interesting about Reg Wiseman. He had some link with Hyperion, which, of course, is the great racehorse or the great stallion whose statue is in Newmarket High Street. Did, did he work on the stud? Did he take the shoes off when it came out of training? I don't know. Perhaps he polished the statue. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, that might have been it. Yeah. I know he claimed some link. Anyway, there were, there were lots of characters, wasn't there? And there, were, there, there was um, farriers from all over the country and uh, even occasionally a couple from outside the UK, even back in those days. Yeah, but I think that came a little bit later, um, a few years later, when, we, when Father started going to Hong Kong to teach and um, he'd have four or five come over in the summer, uh, in, yes, it would be in the summer, in their close season, in the summer, and um, try and learn yeah. as we went along. I mean, I always remember, probably this is going on a little bit further than that, I would guess it would have been mid-70s, 76, 77, um, and, I, and I always remember one chap coming with me, Ah Ming, who every time he put a shoe on, would then get get a, um, a cup full of water, hold the foot up, put the water in, and see how, see how much leaked, and see how level it got the shoe. <laughs> but but I was thinking more of some of the UK characters. I know we had one who had been a mining farrier, hadn't he? Oh, uh, yes. Um, Ivan. Ivan Mays. Ivan Mays, who who smoked 40 caps and full strength a day and probably drunk 10 pints of Abbott and died very young at about 48 of cirrhosis. Not a big surprise. No. But there was a big, I think there was a big drinking culture amongst um, a lot of farriers in those days, particularly the older ones. I mean, we, my father had three brothers who were junior partners with him, Morris, Russell and Peter, and all um, imbibed to a... Yeah. Pretty high. Most of them would be start early, shoe early, but finish at lunchtime the shoeing, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely, yes. I don't think any of any of them really considered um, that afternoons was a... It was normally shoemaking in the afternoons, wouldn't it? Because if you didn't have the shoes in those days, you couldn't put them on because they were... And, all, can you remember how many fires we occasionally had going? Yeah, 13. Yeah, there was 13 S fires. In the seven in the front and six in the back. Yeah, and it was, uh, uh, in the summer, it was noisy, hot, and quite a smell of sulphur from the coast, yeah. wasn't there? Yes, yeah, it probably wasn't the most healthiest environment. And I always remember um, that Peter, Ivan Mays, and Horace Spence, and um, who was the other? Oh, Uncle Russell as well, they'd, they'd get a crate of Guinness and put them in the boshes, wouldn't they, to keep yeah. cold and... Uh, yeah. Make 12 shoes, have a bottle of beer and then make another 12 shoes. Yeah. That was the, the pattern. All right, let's move on from that. Now, obviously a year after you started, um, our younger brother Nick started. No, incorrect, he started the same year as me. Oh, did he? Yes, then you could yeah. finish, you could leave school at 15. So Nick started... I think they made a special ruling for Nick, that school. Well, he, he spent most of his time in the forge down at um, Lord Derby's stud during his last year at school. 
and that was an arrangement the school were quite happy with and I think um, Nick was quite happy with <laughs> I think the only time he went to school in that time was when they had a rugby match and he used to um, hook for the first team. Yeah. So there was three of us, three uncles, as you said, and Dad, so there were seven kids in yeah. George at that time. Um, but as you say, that was one-third of the, of the working numbers there. Um, and we did used to get through a lot of horses, didn't we? And we, we shod for quite a few well-known trainers. And uh, what was the, who was the first trainer that you shod for? The first trainer I really had more or less sole responsibility for was um, a very nice man, Willie, Willie, Willie Hastings Bass, who unfortunately only trained in the town. I think his first spell was three years. He, I always remember he started the first year he came to the forge and asked we'd do them and I said I'd like to do, you know, and he had about 26 horses the first year and had 27 winners. The next year he had a few more, he had a, a winner at Ascot and he, he was really taking off and um, I think he was the first fellow in Newmarket to be sent, first trainer in Newmarket to be sent um, yearlings by Sheikh Mohammed. And unfortunately, he decided that he was going to go to um, Australia, and he went out to Australia and tried his luck. But it was a, it was a lovely yard to work in. It was um, not all yards were happy yards. I don't I can't put it any any other way than that. Yeah. But um, it, it was probably the happiest yard I ever worked in. It wasn't so military as um, some of them, and um, William Hastings Bass was quite keen on sport, so. We'd go down to um, Kingsclare and play his brother's, uh, his brother-in-law's team at cricket. I can't remember his name. Oh, Ian Balding. Ian Balding. So we'd go down there and play cricket. My claim to fame there was that Guy Harwood was opening for, um, who was a big trainer at the time, probably the biggest trainer in the, in the country, was opening the batting for um, Ian Balding's eleven. I knocked the middle stump out from cover point, him trying to cap to um, take the first run off the first ball. So that was greeted with quite a silence. I was delighted. <laughs> <laughs> well, they probably hadn't seen somebody who could really... Throw, well, I'm sure they could, actually. But could, did you play... You didn't play at Arundel, did you, the game? Not that game. No, we played... Uh, they had a ground at... Um, but I did play at Arundel... Um, John Dunlop, so played for New, Newmarket Racing 11, and um, that was quite, um, well, it's quite a privilege to play there. Be, be, it was. Um, Is it the Sussex? Uh, uh, yeah, it stood in the grounds of Arundel Castle, um, uh, Lord, Lord and Lady, oh dear, can't remember the, can't remember the names, but. Um, I'm sure they can remember yours. But it was always the um, first game of any touring sides came, they'd come down there and they played the Duchess of Norfolk's okay. 11. So that's, uh, well, at least a, a couple of the trainers. Now, what about horses? You must have had um, the opportunity to be involved with uh, famous horses, famous race horses. Yeah, well... I'm, I'm, Two derby winners, I think. Well, I did eventually, but I, in the late 70s and early... 80s we did we did um, the national stud and of course they had 
had some marvellous stallions and on, on one occasion I can remember one day showing Mel Reeve, Derby winner and Arc de Triomphe winner, Grundy Derby winner, Star Appeal, Arc de Triomphe winner, Blakeney um, Derby winner and Moorstyle, which was champion sprinter and won three group, group one winners. And then after that went across the road to Lordship Stud and trimmed um, Brigadier Girard, yeah. probably, well, was the highest rated, highest rated cult of um, the 20th century. And um, the one they always compare with Frankel, don't they? Yeah. And he well, was similar in build and performance. Yeah, he was. And um, of course, Mill Reef, the only time he was beaten was in the Guineas by Brigadier Gerard. Brigadier Gerard. And it wasn't until Frankel, Frankel was the first, the only cult ever to be rated higher than um, yeah. Brigadier Gerard. So that was that was quite something. You know, I mean, I didn't do them when they were in training, obviously, but uh, to do those horses was um, quite a privilege, really. But on the other hand, you didn't get paid any more for doing those five <laughs> than five sewing platers. No, exactly. Yeah. No, uh, yeah. Ask the stud farms if you can yeah. uh, charge proportionately to the to the yeah. worth of the horses, and I know the answer you get. But all right. So, but what about in training? Well, in training, I did some, yes, um, I suppose the best horse, or what turned out the best horse, would have been a mare called Ouija Board, which um, I did as a foal and as a yearling. And then as a two-year-old, I don't think it ran as a two-year-old. And then after that, I didn't do it, but it, it went on to be one of the great um, brood mares. Well, it won... Two Breeders' Cup races and second, which I think is still the best record of any horse in the Breeders' Cup. Really? Yeah. yeah. And I know it was Racehorse of the Year worldwide, well, probably the two years that won yeah. the Breeders' Cup, or Turf Horse of the Year. Yeah. No, she was fantastic. Um, and then she did even more, didn't she? Because you then yeah, got after at stud. Yes, and she produced um, a colt. I think it was her first colt as well. No. No, well... M monsoon, or monsoon. Right. Yeah. Um, yes, which was a, a, a cult by... can't remember what he was by, but he was brought by um, by the Coolmore set up and trained by Aidan O'Brien and was named Australia and won the, um, won the derby. English derby. And as I always tell my Australian friends, <laughs> it's the only way Australia will ever win our derby. Quite right. Yes, yeah, so that stud as well. So, so that was one. I did, I did the derby winner for Luca Cabani, a horse called KRC, owned by Niaga Khan. Extraordinary little racehorse because it was the first, and I think, I, I may be wrong, but I think it was the only horse to win the derby that was a June foal. So, of course, when it won the derby... It was only really two years old. Yeah, no, that's quite right. That's yeah. it, it, it's very rare for anything outside early April yeah. to win the Derby, let alone that. All right, so you've been in racing, or you were you were a farrier in racing from seventy three until five years ago. Oh, no, 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 ten, ten. I, I you haven't been retired ten years. No, I haven't shot a horse for five years. Oh, well, five years. 
Yeah, so, then, so I'm just trying to work out the span. Just about 40 years then. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. 40 years. I wonder what changes you've seen in those 40 years. Well, there's three major cha- changes, I would say. One big one was, was the introduction of decent um, machine-made shoes. You'd be very hard-pressed to find anybody, I suspect, who, who, who makes regular shoes for a racing yard or any, any yard. The other one was the introduction of um, acrylics and glues um, as aids. And probably the other big change was the use of calming drugs and... Oh, sedatives. Sedatives, yes. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, the use of sedatives, which, of course, when, when we first started... Um, the twitch um, was... <laughs> well, the twitch was an awful thing. But yes, those were the, 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 the three big changes. I mean, a, a, lot, of, a lot of trainers would, would judge, judge a farrier on his ability to get four horses on some of them. They were so wild. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, that, 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 let's just ask you a question about what you think makes a good racehorse farrier or or plater. Well, of course, obviously the thing underpins everything is is the skill to to get four shoes on a horse and it be sound when you leave it. Of course, in in the racing industry, in my time, you were reliant on finding the work yourself. You, the, the trainer left you to decide when a horse needed shoeing, etc., etc. I think that I think the ma- the major skill with, with doing thoroughbreds, particularly during the season, is making sure that you've always got some foot to nail to. You know, it, you could be too clever taking too much foot off and you you've got a horse that's particularly in the early days when, when, when the aluminium was so the aluminium shoes were basically poor and you, you couldn't leave them in them, so you, your horse might run three times in the month, and you might be plating it three times and putting, you know. I think that's the difference that um, a lot of people around the world don't know because most in most racing uh, in around the world is carried out on track. The training's on track, and the horses stay on track. Um, but in the UK and Ireland, they're trained off track, so they're trotting down roads, and then when they go racing. They have uh, their racing aluminium plates put on, and and so that means you've probably got a formula for how many sets of shoes a horse has in a year, in a racing yard. Well, well, I always worked on that on on the premise that in a racing yard, out of season, out of season, it, it would probably be five shoes a month during the season. It could be it could be anything. I don't think I ever had a formula. I do remember when I was doing uh, Luca Kamani's, and it would have been 1988, and our secretary, Ken, having given him all the booking, came out and said, we've just had our first £10,000 bill for a calendar month. And he had 170, about 170 horses in training at the time, and, uh, and we put on over 300, 300 sets in that yard. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that gives an idea of the volume. I think people don't realise, OK, it averages out. There's some horses are doing nothing. They have one set on in a month. And therefore, that means some others are getting four or five sets. Yes. In the season. Yeah. And that really takes a skill to manage. It, 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 very, much de- it very much depended in Newmarket on where you trained. I mean, some of the, the, the better stables go straight out onto the heath. So, you, you know, I always remember Nick 
who did Brother Nick, who did Henry Cecils, who barely saw a piece of concrete, that he was refitting shoes, you know, yeah. every every five weeks because, of course, that's the other thing with performance horses. You know, you, you didn't leave it till the shoe had worn out yeah. because you, you might be seven, eight weeks or something like that, by which time they might be um, chopping um, lumps out of their um, tendons. Yeah. So... That was probably one of the, that was the most important reason to keep them um, short. But it, it, it differed from yard to yard. And, and the other big difference, of course, was with the growth of the horses in Newmarket, the jockey club, then they only had so much grassland that they, they put in the synthetic... Training tracks. Tra- yeah. Yes. Um, and, um, of course, it made a, it created another problem because I... Don't remember seeing too many quarter cracks in nineteen seventy five, but there was certainly by. But that by, reminds me because we both worked on a Luca Kamani horse. We did that indeed. Had a quarter crack that won uh, the Cambridgeshire. It which won- for those that you don't know is just about the biggest handicap in the UK, and it won it with the most weight on its back, didn't it? I'm not sure about that, but I do, I, I do remember that in, in June it ran, a, ran at Ascot, very fast ground, finished, finished fourth or fifth, came back with bilateral quarter cracks, and um, I believe you'd just been to the States, um, particularly on the, on, the, on, on the West Coast where they have a lot of synthetic tracks, and they'd, you'd seen... And, I was and, dead keen to and, and learned, have a go. Yeah, and, at, learned, at and, and, and learned how to repair them. And I can re- remember very clearly um, yourself, myself, Luca Kamani and um, Tim Creek, that being there, and Luca saying, oh, this, this is a shame, this is a shame, because we could get this horse right, um, have a great chance in the Cambridgeshire. So, of course, the first thing liking a bet, the uh, first thing I asked you, do you think you can get it right? And you were quite confident. So I went and availed myself of 25 to 1. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I even persuaded you to have a yes, five on each way. I'm not normally a betting man, but um, yeah. I had to back myself, as they say, that time. And um, it was 25 to 1. And on the day, it was only 5 to 1. So, yeah. so it was the right thing to do because it had... Done well in a warm-up race after that, but yes, that was that was the first success with uh, quarter crack repair. Yeah, uh, and of course, I've recently put online um, a video on quarter crack repair, slightly different from the technique we used then, but um, nevertheless, it shows you racehorses are still getting uh, quarter cracks. Now, if I can bring us back to studs because um, or stud farms, uh, because we we talked about that one great mare Ouija board. But of course, it used to be the pattern that you did the racing yards in the morning and uh, then stud farms in the afternoon. So we all had a smattering of mares and foals and yearlings, but I wondered what you preferred to work on. Well, as I, the older I kept them, got, the more I preferred to work really with foals and yearlings because they're, they're lighter, they're easier on your body. Most of the studs we did um, handled their foals and yearlings quite regularly, so most of them were, were very good. And of course, those that weren't, there was always a sedative for because it wasn't in the interest 
uh, of the stud to have any men injured, in the interest of the stud to have the farrier injured, and it certainly wasn't in the interest of the stud to have the horse injured. So, um, yeah. I, I think people outside the um, professional stud farm in industry, breeding thoroughbreds, uh, the farriers wouldn't actually believe that those of us in it would prefer to do the youngsters. Um, but for the reasons you say, that um, for most people, uh, most farriers out there, if they're asked to do a foal or a yearling, they are expecting a difficult time. Whereas we, we would do 12, 15, 20 at a time, wouldn't we? Yes, oh yes, yeah, but really, I think it's probably the most lucrative form of work from, from the point of view of um, what you're getting through to the time you're spending doing it. The other thing is, if you're trimming a horse, it can't lose a shoe, can it? Exactly. You know, you haven't got a... So there's no services or no, no. no aftercare service. No. You just no. return a month later and uh, trim them again. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we've covered quite a bit, but what I want to do now is ask you uh, the deeply philosophical question uh, of what it is that you have learned most in your working life. What's the most important thing you've learned? Make sure you get paid for what you do. Um, that would probably be pretty up there at the top of my list. I'd like to be able to tell you something really profound and wise. Well, I did throw that at you without any warning. I do actually think making sure you get paid is probably good advice to any farrier. Yeah, well, I think in our earlier days, it was something that you had to often do, chase up your money. I don't believe in our, in, in our, in our later days as a partnership we had that quite the same problem. But certainly when I started, I mean, it was, it was quite unusual for a trainer to pay you before he paid his tailor, and that would probably be about five, six months, some of them. Yeah, um, yeah it was an interesting uh, times in that they expected you there uh, within minutes, but didn't think you should be paid for no. months. But there we go, that's maybe a, a bit of a moan, and, um, but we did get paid in the end. Very few escaped, did they? No, very few, very, very few did. Um, I don't think we should mention any names, but I, <laughs> I did. Um, there was one gentleman who, when father was getting, um, when, when, when his Parkinson's was developing and uh, he was sort of handing more of the business running over to us, um, there was one particular trainer who, who was five months behind and Ken had said, you must do something about it, Mark. So I made an appointment to see him after leaving stables about six o'clock one evening. He was very welcome, came in. Would you like a drink, Mark? I thought, yes, I'd better be sociable. Pulled me a whiskey. Two hours later, I walked up there, out of there, bad, barely be able to stand without a penny in my pocket, to which the next morning, brother Nick said, well, I'll leave it a week and then I'm going up. He came out thinking he was the most marvellous world man in the world, half pickled and without and money as well. And he wasn't paid either. Well, but we did get, he did pay in the end. But, he um, did. I, I believe he had to retire from training before he paid us up. Well, Mark, uh, we have covered your career of 40 years as a farrier. Um, just as a final word, looking back on it, uh, what are your final views? Well, I suppose I'm very grateful for the living it's given me. But probably more importantly, it, 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 it's the people I've met and um, some wonderful characters. Um, Farrier World is 
basically a very small one compared to most other um, industries or skills. Um, hard to pick people out, I suppose. One that I treasure more than most would be Hans Albrecht, who I met about 30 years ago, and we've been firm friends ever since, stay in contact, went to his wedding, um, been on holiday with him, fellow who suited me down to the ground, loved a beer, loved a joke. And, of course, the other thing that um, springs to mind is it's always rewarding to see apprentices that we've had over the years now going on and picking up the mantle and uh, giving back, giving back to the industry. One who springs to mind, I was reading about the other day, would be Mark Trussler, who probably holds a record as an apprentice for wrecking vans, but um, we won't dwell <laughs> on that too much. Um, no, it's it's always nice. I mean, I can think far-flung some of these lads, Germany, Switzerland... Australia, Singapore. Malaysia. Yeah. So, you know, you'd like to think that you had some small part in their development and, uh, as I say, it's, it's something worthwhile to look back on. Uh, on that note, I would like to thank you for your time and your insights and also reminding me uh, about life in Newmarket, both showing at the racing stable, but also life on the stud farm. Thank you very much, Mark. You're welcome. Been a pleasure. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>